there. This is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I love to talk to creative people. And today my guest is a playwright named Eric Anderson. His play is called Back Porch. I saw it on Saturday night and I was so into it that I arranged to interview him the very next morning. I hadn't planned that at all. And so um, we went to his hotel, and I had all my fancy equipment ready to do it. And we were going to do it in the lobby there, and they wouldn't let us. Um, so I recorded it on my iPhone. So it's going to sound a little bit different, but I hope you enjoy the conversation. I really enjoyed the play. And even if you're not in L.A. and can't come and see it, I think you might find the themes interesting. Um, when Eric was four years old, he was growing up in Kansas. And the movie Picnic with William Holden and Kim Novak came to shoot in his town, and his family got to be extras in it. He was uh, at four years old. He was in this one scene, and he still remembers it. So he took that idea and did a kind of gay twist on the play Picnic by William Inge, who was a closeted gay playwright, and he sort of played out those themes in a different way. And the play really captured my imagination, because if I... Had a, had a movie come to my town when I was, you know, 18. There's a character in the play who is 18 and uh, a budding gay, and the play comes to ta- uh, the movie comes to town to shoot, and he loses his mind. That would have happened to me. I really thought, oh my gosh, if that had come to my little town in Holbrook, Arizona, I would have lost my mind. And of course, there's a drift, a quote unquote drifter. Uh, he's actually not a drifter. He's a, a stunt double. Uh, in the in the movie for William Holden, and he begins this relationship with the the, the young man that lives there in the town, and um, it didn't go where I thought it was going to go, and that's what I really appreciated about the play. But we're going to talk about it more in the actual interview. But before we get to that, I want to remind you that this podcast, Dennis, anyone, is brought to you by You Don't Know My Life, the party game. You know, I always do a gag like there's no sponsor, but I can have a sponsor. I can sponsor my own little podcast with my my other side uh, gig, which is You Don't Know My Life. It's a party game. It's a box party game. I created it with my friend Jeb Havens. You can get it on Amazon. It's perfect for all your summer gatherings. And I've been hosting virtual game nights for mostly for companies lately that are doing team building remotely. And so if you're interested in any of that, go to YouDon'tKnowMyLife.com. You can also just find the game on Amazon. See a real sponsor, sort of. Also, I want to remind you that there are two ways you can listen to this podcast. You can listen, as you always do, on your favorite app, or you can become a subscriber to DNR Studios. I'm part of a group of shows under the DNR banner, and for a monthly fee, you get my show two days early, and you get all these other great shows. It's such a great group. And you can learn more about that at DNR Studios. And if you do subscribe and you say that I'm the show that you listen to most, I get a little cash in my pocket, which is always nice. Also, if you want to support the podcast, you can go to DennisAnyone.net slash support and leave a tip in my virtual tip jar. All right, that's enough for the housekeeping. Here now is the interview with Eric Anderson. I'm coming to you from the Amarano Hotel in Burbank. I'm here with playwright Eric Anderson. His play is Back Porch. I saw it last night. And, and we're like, let's do a podcast. And so here we are. So we're, we we're doing it on my iPhone. We're making it happen. Um, I really love the play. Congratulations. Thank you very much, De- Dennis. Um, so you're in from Hawaii, where you live. Mm-hmm. And you're here in Los Angeles putting up your play. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you feel? Like, last night was the opening night. How do you feel being here and doing it? Well... I feel pretty good overall. Yeah. Uh, we arrived earlier in the week for the Rocky Tech rehearsals, and then we'll be here for opening weekend. Yeah. Um, we uh, contracted in the uh, Victory Theater for their space. Right. We're an independent production called Blue Stem Productions, and this is our premier production. 
Right on. And uh, we just decided to start with this play, and uh, we're very happy with it. I love it. Um, so what it, how do you describe the story to someone that knows nothing about it? It's difficult to describe in a way because it has two levels to it. Yeah. A lot of people um, are familiar with the play or the movie Picnic right. by William Inge. And if they are not, it, you can still enjoy the play, but if you are familiar with Picnic, it helps. Right. I do a kind of alternate universe version of it. I, um, instead of um, a handsome stranger coming into a house full of women, right. as in Picnic, um, I have a handsome stranger coming into a household of men. Right. And has a romance with one of the older sons. So that is um, how the two plays sort of intertwine with each other or reflect each other. Right. Well, I grew up in a small town, so the the setup of your play, which is that this movie, Picnic, comes to shoot in this small Kansas town, yes. really captured my imagination because I thought... If a, if a movie came to my town, Holbrook, Arizona, when I was like a teenager obsessed with movies and pop culture and everything, I would have lost my mind. You would have gone over the moon. I would have gone over the moon. I was so I would have been so excited about it. And so I really related to the character of Gary, who's like a 17-year-old, 18-year-old. He's 18. He's 18. And he's just graduating. He's about to go to college. And, and when he finds out about this movie, it's very funny. He kind of loses his mind. Mm -hmm. And I understand that it's you grew up in the town where Picnic was filmed. Is that but right? Not, not altogether right. Oh, okay. Um, some outdoor scenes were filmed in a county next to ours. Okay. And my family drove over to the filming of it one night, that scene where they shout, Me Wallace, so right. uh, on one side of the riverbank as Kim Novak comes down the river. Queen of Niwala. So uh, that memory is branded on me. Right. Even How old would you have been when that four. happened? Do you remember it? Yes. And as a positive thing, as an exciting oh, thing? Yes. I was terribly excited. I knew, <clears throat> pardon me, I certainly knew about the movies, but being a four-year-old and getting tired, I got bored after a while. Sure, of course. It's a lot of uh, hurry up and wait. Yes. Um, but you remember it. You remember being there. Very well. Yeah. What do you think when you look at the movie? What do you think when you look at Picnic? Um, it's a strange feeling, and I don't know how to describe it well. They filmed so much of the, the outdoor scenes um, in Kansas, and the cinematography was such that I remember that feeling as a boy right. of uh, backyards that were sort of spare and not very well camped, garbage um, trash cans that back then you could burn the trash in the backyard. Right. And the sort of hot feeling in the air, the wind, the dryness of it. So they captured something they that captured was true. That. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. And the story, of course, has always appealed to me because I'm a romantic and... Uh, the fact that this happened in Kansas, even though, of course, it's strictly Hollywood, appealed to me, too. Yeah. You know what I don't think we see enough of in the world nowadays? Drifters. Drifters really need to make a comeback. Like the sexy guy that comes into town, we don't see it anymore. Like, where's it? We need a good drifter to walk in right now with the leather jacket. Well, I'm afraid they stop drifted and just sleep on the sidewalk. <laughs> they do, or they're on their phones. They're on, they're on their, their phones. phones. But drifters always find a way to work out, because they're always in good shape. Mm -hmm. It's all that drifting, I guess. I don't know. But I love a sexy drifter story. I wonder whether it's just a romantic trope in America. <laughs> yeah, but it sort of taps into something of, like, you don't know if you can trust them. 
And I think that's the heart of this story in a way. That's part of the story. Um, the, the other part of the story, if I may pursue that, is yes. that they'll, they'll disrupt you. Yeah, they shake things up. Mm -hmm. And then they move on. And then they move on. Or maybe they don't, or maybe you don't want them to, or maybe you need them to. It's like all of that. They shake everything up. And this really captures that. I went back and looked at the trailer of Picnic, and he has a leather jacket, just like your character wears. Like, how, when you were putting the thing together, how did you kind of go back and forth? How did you find those little moments? I've seen the film several times. Parts of it have lodged in my memory for good. So when I came up with the idea of doing so-called a gay version of Picnic, right. I just drew upon what I remembered. Right. And decided what I needed to, uh, what I needed to part company with insofar as the film was concerned and what I wanted to create myself. Right. Now, the playwright, William Inge, was, was gay, mm -hmm. um, but wasn't able to sort of write about those things in that way at that time. No. How much do you know about his life? Just bits and pieces. To my yeah. knowledge, there is not a biography of him, and there probably should be, um, but I don't know of one. I've read some about him. He grew up in Kansas. He was very conflicted about where he grew up. Although he couldn't wait to get away, he always came back. Came back to see his family and yeah. friends. So he never could tear his himself away from it entirely. Um, he was a significant playwright and significantly closeted. And it tortured him. He was an alcoholic and eventually killed himself when he was 70 years old. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah, I'm afraid so. It's not a very happy life. But he wrote this play, Bus Stop. Bus Stop. Come Back, Little Sheba. And Dark at the Top of the Stairs are his four jewels. And they're so canon. They're like, they're like so rich and... They have all that underbelly of like sexuality and longing and like it, America. Like he's he really got his finger on the pulse of something. Yeah, I think you put your finger on the theme of him, which was longing. Yeah. Repression. Not being able to get loose. Yeah. Sexually, or even in your life, just being tied down. Now, watching your play unfold. Uh huh. It's the fifties. We see this budding romance happening. And as viewers, we know of all the homophobia, all the stuff that's going to get in the way of this. You decided that's not what you wanted to explore. No. And I found that so refreshing. Um, of course, we know it's there. It's not nothing. But it's not what you wanted to write about, right? I think it's been done, Frank. Right. We've seen it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, it's not going to be that. So now there's room for something else, mm -hmm. right? And then you get to see what that is. And we get to see what that is. And I was really inspired by the character of Gary, the 18-year-old guy that that's getting ready to go off to college he's kind of bold like he's not like oh he's not full of shame he's kind of leans into it in a way that was believable in the context of the play but felt fresh in terms of drama because we're not used to seeing somebody who hasn't had that much experience but kind of going i'm leaning into this yes i'm not exactly. gonna be afraid of this that's what i wanted he has a great deal of self-confidence. Yeah. More than I had at that age. Right. And it was refreshing to see, and I thought the actor portrayed it really well. I do, too. Yeah. I thought the cast was... I thought that they were so well cast. Um, but it was important for you to write in this way. It was. I wanted to write something affirmative is the word that comes to me. Right. Um, not scared and shameful and hateful and hurtful and all of those things that we grew up seeing in our in gay 
entertainment. Right. And the drifter himself, uh, Bill, we've, we know the love him and leave him guy. We've seen that a million times, too. And you wanted to do something different with him. Mm-hmm. Can you well, talk for- a little bit about the character of Bill? Sure. For one thing, he's not a drifter. He's gainfully employed. Right. He's, he's, he's a the, he's the stand Yeah. Stunt double for um, William Holden, the star. That's part of the um, parallel universe of the, of the film and of my play, Backboards. Right. He's um, a responsible man. Uh, I think he always has been. He's kicked around a lot. Right. He's been hurt a little. He's never been in love before. He meets this fellow Gary in, the, in my play. And I think he's, um, as uh, the father of the boy says in the play, a good egg. He's um, basically a trustworthy fellow. Yeah. And that's refreshing. That's mm-hmm. interesting. Because you get to see, what, okay, what if they could, if they didn't have all of these obstacles, what could their romance be? What could their relationship be? And you got to look at that. Mm-hmm, exactly. Uh, in a way that wasn't trouble-free, but it was interesting. Mm-hmm. And, and it felt fresh. I was reminded of a story that happened to me when I was in high school. I forgot about it. I hadn't thought about it in a long time until I saw your play. Oh. When I was in high school, I was a senior in high school, there was a young man that I became friends with who was two years older than me. And we hung out in a group of friends with girls, and uh, he was a hairdresser. And we had never talked about sexuality or sexual orientation. There wasn't an attraction there. We were just friends. But looking back, I'm like, clearly we were both gay. Like, we, we just hadn't... We just weren't there in terms of our understanding or whatever. And I came home one day, and my mother told me that I was no longer allowed to hang out with him. Because one of um, the town busybodies had told her that he was gay. And I'm trying to remember how I felt about it. I was a little bit shocked, and I felt a little bit like, that little gossipy bitch, like... You know, like, like it was the, 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 the pick a little, talk a little town of it all. And I, it didn't take, because I still ended up being friends with him. Good. But I remember, and, and my family, we didn't talk about hard things. We didn't have a lot of rules. I was a good kid. So for her to make a rule like that about a person, it, it was not nothing. And yet I don't remember, I still ended up being friends with him. Like, I don't think it took I don't think I listened, or, or, or maybe she said it and then that didn't enforce it. But I, but it was that. Like he, there were parallels. He was a little older, came into my town, and of course the grown-ups see what's happening, even the ones that are super naive. It's right there. Mm-hmm. I, I also like that their expression of their attraction and their physicality. They weren't very discreet. They they were a little more touchy, looky in a way that I thought, oh, this is interesting to see. Why was that important to you? I think that's part and parcel of what I said earlier. If I didn't, I wanted to write a different kind of play. Right. Which they did not have to lock everything up. Right. But certain things were taken for granted. Yeah. Obviously, they did not want everybody to know that they were having a relationship and they were so in love with each other that it slipped out. Right. In what I call the green cheese scene. Yeah. Um, so, it, it, but it embarrassed them rather than shamed them. Right. It, it was more. It wasn't. They didn't act like what they were doing was, was the, wrong. Was the worst thing in the world? No, mm-hmm. it wasn't. Or it was any different than if they were a straight couple or whatever. That's what felt fresh about it, and Good. I appreciate it because it, 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 we've seen the other stuff. It's real. Mm-hmm. We know it, mm-hmm. but we've yeah. seen it. You know, and this was like, oh, this is this something is a, else. Something else. 
The character of the father really moved me. Good. Um, talk a little bit about the father and his situation and where he comes to the story from. Well, I think in some ways he is uh, the fundament of the play. He is a man whose wife has died and his emotions have frozen ever since her death. He has these two sons. Even though he's a widower, he has nobody to help raise him. Um, and although I think he's a good man and has deep feelings, he's never been able to show it to his two sons since his wife died. And this stranger comes into the household and starts to shake things up, makes good friends with a younger boy and becomes a lover of the older boy of his. And um, it, starts to sh it starts to rouse things in him, that, in the father, that have been asleep for many years. Like, gee, my sons are growing up. They have feelings of their own people. And he's confronted with um, the fact that one of them might be gay. And gee, what have I done all these years to uh, help that or hinder that? Right. So by the time the play is over, I like to think that he has opened up again. Yeah. He's unfrozen. He's unlocked. Right. And I, th I think that if the wife hadn't died and they'd just been a normal nuclear family, he wouldn't have had the emotional capacity to deal with what's happening with his son. Or like, I, I think he would have been a different, it would have been a different story. I think he would have pushed it on his wife. Yeah. And have her deal with it. Yeah. But he had to himself. He was all alone. And he had to step up. And, and I found that up. really moving. And I felt like the actor's performance was so deeply felt. And Wasn't he good? He it was so good. And father stuff moves me, I think, because I realized recently, I, I've sort of acknowledged or owned the fact that if you had told my father that my emotional well-being was part of his job, he wouldn't have even known what those words meant. Like, it would not have been, you know... It's the same with my father. Like, like... He was a good provider, and he, I, mm -hmm. I wasn't abused. But if, if if how I was doing was something that he was supposed to be thinking about, men of that generation did not take. They that wouldn't off. have known. They would have looked at you like <laughs> you had three heads. And there's a part in the play where one of the characters, where, where Gary's feeling heartbroken, and he's comforted by his father. And I thought, I don't think I've ever seen a father, gay or straight, comforting a gay or straight son about heartbreak. Romantic heartbreak, and that, uh, that things could turn around. I'm not. I don't want to give away the ending. But there's a moment where he's feeling heartbroken, and I don't think I've ever seen a father comfort a son about that. I haven't. Right? It felt really like I've never seen this before. But of course, we live with these people. We have things going on. Why wouldn't that happen? But it was a certain, I don't know, kind of code where people didn't. Engage about that. There's several codes going on, Dennis. Yeah. Men of that generation were generally raised to not show their feelings <clears throat> toward their wives or, cho or children. Right. And uh, they didn't know how. That's how they were raised. Right. And it all go it goes back all the way to the Victorian age. You just did not let it out. Yeah. And I think things are changing. At least there's. I hear conversations around this um, more and more. Um, so that's good, but yeah, they they Thanks wouldn't have known. Thanks to you and I, <laughs> yes. out of the people like it, we push the doors for their open. I think so. I think it's a big, a big thing, not just for gay people, but for all Everybody. men, men and boys, all of it. Um, there's a character named Myron who's a who rents a room in the house where all of this has happened. He's a music teacher, 
and he's kind of uptight and buttoned up and has a, has a journey. Talk to me about the character of Myron and what he was there to represent, because I think he was there to be the judgy, the sort of what are the neighbors going to think, that person. Um, but he's also funny, and the actor did a great job. Talk to me about Myron and why he was important to your story. Oh, I needed a contrary voice and attitude. I also think this is a play about some repression and breaking free from it. He is not a gay character. He is just sexually and emotionally blocked. Right. And uh, again, the stranger coming into the household shakes that up in him. Yeah. And he realizes the discrepancy between normal people do and the kind of life that he's leading. So he mainly is there, his character is mainly there to show the uh, contrast between the general household and the life he's leading. Yeah, well it comes across great and the yeah. actor does a great job, especially in, in near the end he has a kind of a big scene that's that's pretty great. Thank you. Um, now I understand you live in Hawaii now, but you mount plays there, you do things there? I've had several plays there. Um, a couple in Honolulu, no, actually three in Honolulu and one in Hilo at the university near which I live. Right. I'm, I'm asking because I'm looking for ideas. Like, you can, you can go to Hawaii and you can still do your thing and be, be in the arts and be creative. And is it, is it as wonderful as it seems? Well, the arts aren't, to speak frankly, as big a deal in Hawaii. Right. As my husband once said, people don't go to Hawaii for the concerts, uh, <laughs> for the symphony. Right. But those that are working there in the theater work very hard, and uh, I've gotten in connected with some of them. Right. Especially in Honolulu, where there's more going on. Yeah, awesome. Now, I understand that this play was supposed to be done before the pandemic. That's right. What does it mean to you to be doing it now? How did that time affect the journey of the play or your journey? Oh, Dennis, I was so primed to get it done three years ago, and it, the pandemic really shut the box down on that. And I thought we'd never have another chance. But one thing I thought the pandemic would go on indefinitely. Right. And that this play would never see the light of day. Um, my co-producers and friends and I would talk about it and would get in touch with each other and make plans as if it were going to happen someday. You just kept believing. We kept believing in it and by damn it happened. It happened. So what does it mean to you to be here now and it's, it's happening? It's a fulfillment. Yeah. I love it. I do too. Now, why Los Angeles? Because you haven't lived here. Mm -mm. Um, how did you end up doing the play here? Again, my friends, the co-producers, Kelly and David, they do live here. Okay. Uh, Kelly is the director, and then David is, uh, has, is an actor in the L.A. community. And uh, the three of us are all originally from Kansas, so that's how the bond started. And uh, it just seemed like a natural conclusion to do in it in L.A. in their backyard, so to speak. Yeah. You picked some questions from the observation deck. Here, we're going to fire them away. All right. Have you ever been starstruck? I'm still starstruck. The idea of stars um, interests me ever since I was a little boy. Right. I read the movie magazines. I learned a lot more, at least through the, what I could learn through the movie magazines. Right. Whenever I go to New York, um, I still get a little pit-a-pat when I see a star walking on the sidewalk. Right. I've never been able to get rid of that. My mother used to say, oh, they're no good. They lead such um, awful lives. But I was still 
attracted by the glamour. Yeah, me too. And the excitement, and I still am in a way. There's a scene in your play early on where Gary's reading the movie mm -hmm. magazine and he finds out the movie's coming and, you know, <laughs> and his little brother gets gets closer to the action than he does and he's like, what? He couldn't, he can't believe it. I think it's so funny because I would have been that guy. I would have been, but wait, I, I love the movies. Mm -hmm. Why, what's wrong, you know, like, I, I thought that was so funny. The way it would have been the same with me except yeah. I would have been too shy. You would have been too shy to... To, to, to talk to William Holden. Wow. Oh, yes. Yeah. I was not a pushy little boy. Yeah. There's a character named Del. Del, uh... The brother. The little brother. brother. Um, he's so sweet. <clears throat> and he's... I love that actor, and he has this kid energy, and mm -hmm. I just... What does he bring <clears throat> to the story in terms of the themes that you're representing? Because... It, everyone loves him and cares about him, but they're not all worried about him or what he's going to see. Or like, it, it doesn't have that. Oh, what about the kids feeling mm -hmm. that I found refreshing? Um, Again, it's something that we've seen before. Right. Keep it away from the from the children. Right. And he's just part of it. I mean, he's just he, part of it. He obviously is not taking in everything. Yeah. Yeah. But they don't shush him into the other room. Right. And they're they're not terrified that he's gonna <laughs> something he's gonna see something or anything like that um okay here's another question you picked what movie have you seen more than any other brief encounter oh i haven't seen it who's in it it's a classic it's a british film from the late 40s with uh celia johnson and trevor howard okay Noel coward wrote the screenplay it's a romantic i hesitate hesitate to say tragedy but it's right. a, a downer of a movie and beautifully romantic uh, exquisitely acted, and I always get sucked into it every time I see it. You just love it. You should check it out. All right, Brief Encounter, it's on my list. Okay. I'm going to watch it. And you also picked this one. Who was your most impactful teacher? Well, I'd have to say it was my playwriting professor uh, when I was in college at, at graduate school. Um, he, his name was Ron Willis, and he came to the university uh, about one year after I entered the uh, theater department. They had taught no playwriting until then, and he said, I can do that. So I took an independent study from him. Oh, so it was just you and him? Just just the two of us. Wow. And uh, he taught me the nuts and bolts of playwriting. And man, I was a slow learner. I've always had a gift for dialogue, but I've had difficulty in structuring. Yeah. And plotting carefully. And uh, I would write 10 pages of dialogue, bring it into him, on Friday, and we would get together on Monday, and he would go through it, say, you're not getting this, you're getting better in that. Go back and try it again. Go back and try it again. Go back and try it again. And uh, finally, it it got into my head. Yeah. So every time I write a play or even a scene, I think about it. That's amazing. It is amazing. Yeah, and how long did you study with him? Was it just one term, or was it over a period of years? Two years. Two years. Awesome. And then I took a couple of uh, formal classes with him, too. His yeah. History of American Theater. Did you keep in touch with him? Oh, yes. Is he still with us? I'm afraid not. I'm afraid not. But did I, he... Actually, uh, Back Porch, this play of, about which we're talking, is the last play of mine that he read. Wow. That's beautiful. So I think about him every night when I'm watching the play. When you're like, oh, he fixed that. Or he helped me with that. Exactly. Yeah, I or love I, it. I think he'd like that, that kind of thing. That's so wonderful. What's his name? Ron Willis. Ron Willis. I love it. Well, that's so beautiful that he's somebody that, you know, the right teacher at the right time can send us in Did, did you have way. one? Uh, different people, yeah. Um, I think of my high school speech and drama teacher who... 
I, I will never forget this. Uh, I was a golfer in high school. I wasn't good, but I was on the golf team. I, I, I was a small school, so you could do a lot of different things. And um, I, went, I got to go to the Letterman's Banquet for all the athletes because I lettered. I sucked at golf, but I, I you know, I Still, did. Still, I was Yeah, I was there. I was a letter. And, and she happened to be there because she was the speech teacher and the drama teacher and the cheerleading sponsor. Because that's why, so that's why she was there. And I said, I feel so out of space, out of place in this place. And she goes, never feel ashamed that you don't fit in the crowd. You're not a stereotype. And someday you'll appreciate that. And I was like, oh, okay, all right. And I remember that to this day. Uh, and so that's you, somebody that I think about. Do you think she had your number, so to speak? Yeah. Because I was in the drama thing and, you know, uh, playing Mortimer Brewster and Arsenic and Old Lace and kissing the girl and all of that stuff. And like, uh, yeah, I think she did have the number. You know, it's interesting. Your play made me think about this as well, that when you're at a certain age, like a teenager, the adults can look around and see exactly what's happening with you and you don't know yourself. Mm -mm. But they can look in one glance and go, oh. He's he, he's crushing on the he's crushing on the standing or the the stunt double guy, like you can just see it. Whereas we're bewildered, mm -hmm. we don't understand what's happening, and they're like, "Oh, girl, come on," <laughs> you know. But and I, so that's interesting the way adults can see what's going on. But in this play, they see it, but they don't think it's the worst thing in the world. They both see it and don't see it. Yeah, until they have to. Until they have if you're to. Right, and then when they do see it, it's not the worst thing in the it's world. It's not the worst thing in the world. And because you don't explore the cliche things about homophobia, you're left to explore other things. Like, can people make it work? You know, families, yeah. relationships. Yeah. Relationships. When people are in different places and different things, and like, like it just opened up what you could talk about, you know? What, should, what do you hope people take from the play? Um, I hope they're reminded of all of our innate gift for empathy. Mm hmm That people basically want to connect. We forget about a lot of that in this distracting, for want of a better phrase, day and age. Yeah. Um, it's not Pollyanna. I think it's just fundamental survival stuff that we belong together. Yeah. We fall in love with each other. We have parents. We have siblings, we have friends, and we all need to be keep mindful of that. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. Um, so the play runs through July something? July 9th. July 9th. Six weekends. At the Victory Theater. At the Victory Theater. Excellent. People can just Google that and find the tickets, or do you have to right. know the website or anything like that? I think Googling would help you find the website. Yeah, I can't remember it. I'll put it on the. I'll, I'll put it at the end. I'll put it at the end of this podcast. Thank you. All right. Here's my final question. Yes. Why do you write plays? Mm. I'm always reminded of the answer that I had when I first started writing, which was I want to write the kind of dialogue that I never get to hear. That's beautiful. So I think I can extend that now as tell the kind of stories that nobody else is telling. Yeah. Well, I think that's one of the things that made me want to talk to you is that this you think this play is going to be one thing and it's something else exactly and it's something new um with, with echoes of the old which i think is part of what makes it so rich so congratulations thank you very much i could say one more thing your yeah. many of your questions uh made you think of things from your own past yeah and your own present as a matter of fact yeah and i think anybody that sees this play 
I dare say at a certain age, we'll have the same experience. Oh, that was, that reminds me of this. Yeah. I wish that had been true for me. I'm glad that wasn't true for me, all these things. So yeah. I think it will have a uh, resonant feeling for yeah. a lot of audience members. I think so too. So it certainly did for me. I don't know whether it would for a 19-year-old, but right. let's face it, they're not going to come see the play. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they will. I don't know. Maybe they will. Maybe they will. All right. Thank you so much for the conversation. I enjoyed it so much. Thank you, Ken. Thanks again to Eric Anderson. If you're in L.A. and you want to see his play, Back Porch, you can find information at thevictorytheatercenter.org. And theater is R-E. Thevictorytheatercenter.org. All right, so this happened. Um, I think I mentioned a little while ago that I was in the process of a website revamp uh, project. So this company reached out to me. They're called On Podium. They're out of Lithuania. And they design websites for podcasts where everything is sort of automatically done once you post it to the hosting platforms. So it looks really cool. Uh, everything is sort of there. And um, I've been doing it manually for all these years on my own website. It's not as it's kind of janky. So blah, blah, blah. I ended up doing it with them and we're up and running. So you can go and see this cool new website. Um, you can go to DennisAnyone.net. And then when you there, click... Um, listen to the podcast or podcast episodes and you can see our fabulous um you know new website interface i think is the word they use and i want to give a shout out to gintaras who uh is the guy that helped me i was having technical problems that had nothing to do with their platform and he was nice enough to set up a zoom call and talk me through it we got my web hosting figured out i have a lot more work to do on my website but he was a huge help and I'm really happy with the way it's taking shape. So if you want to see what I'm talking about and um, check out the new website, uh, you can do that at DennisAnyone.net. Also, DennisHensley.com goes there, too. See, it's complicated, these things. All right, that's enough for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, I want to give a shout-out to AJ Sousa for mixing the episodes. Our theme music is by Mark Daniels for Placement Music, and we'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye! Bye!